0: Before we start this morning, I um, wanted to ask you just to be praying for Pastor Jeff, or Pastor Jeff, Pastor Brian and his family. We uh, got word yesterday that Pastor Brian's mom passed away, Um, and uh, if you know the family, um, you know that she's been battling dementia for some time, and they were just about to move her into hospice care, and, um, and so she has... to be with Jesus, and Pastor Brian has gone to Ohio to be with his brother and the family um, as they make arrangements, and so um, if you ever had the opportunity of meeting Mrs. Coffey, you know that she exemplified grace and compassion and kindness and joy, Um, and you understand where some of the things that have made Pastor Brian so pastoral um, in his life and, and in, in relationship with, with us, you see um, he comes by it honestly. And so um, his family is both celebrating uh, her life and her healing and her presence with Jesus and mourning her loss and grieving that. And so we, as a church family, uh, want to continue just to pray and support them as well. Um, I don't know if, if you have experienced moments like this in your house, this happens on occasion in my house where when there is a decision or perhaps a disagreement that we are facing, sometimes one of my daughters, I have, I have three daughters, will come as sort of a, a spokesperson or a representative uh, on their behalf and say, dad, we, we all took a vote and we've decided such and such. For instance, the latest one during quarantine was we, we all took a, po- a vote and we have decided that we need an additional puppy um, to the family. Um, and I've seen, I've seen a lot of you have apparently taken that vote from what I've seen on social media and stuff. And, I, and my response is always the same, is what, what indication do you have that this is how things work here, right? Have I given you some idea that this is, is a democracy, right? It is not, it is a dictatorship and your mother is in charge, okay? So stop trying. And and we we live life, right, trying to navigate, figure out authority. What does it look like? What's our part in it? How do we relate to it? And so this morning, I, I want us to explore this idea that we see in scripture of, of what I'm terming as dual citizenship. And how do we live as citizens in a human, political, governmental system? while rooting our identity and our purpose in the kingdom of God. What what does that look like for us as followers of Jesus? Last week, if you were with us, we began our series entitled The Politics of Jesus. And I I had several people ask me, in conversations this week, why did we start this series the week after the election? Wouldn't it have been more appropriate to kind of dig into this prior to November 3rd? And the answer to that is that this series is really not so much about our role in choosing leaders and more about what it looks like to follow Jesus in in any political system, really. It's less about voting and more about living, which is, of course, where we spend most of our time, living within the confines of any given system. And this is not to say that it's not important to think biblically about how we vote. It absolutely is. And, and there's room and space for that as we think within conversations, as, as we talk as the church, that's important and appropriate. But if you look at the topic through the lens of the New Testament, the idea of politics, voting isn't an issue that, that Jesus or Paul were speaking into, per se, because it wasn't their experience. Because Rome wasn't coming to occupied Israel and saying, hey, we'd really like your opinion on this particular policy. We'd like to know what the people think. Instead, when when Jesus and Paul and others teach us about life within a political system, they teach us that, that we, as followers of Jesus, engage not only from the perspective of a citizen of this kingdom, but also and more so from the perspective of the kingdom of God. It's it's about how to live, not how to vote. And so I want to, does that make sense? I I, want to make sure that we're kind of launching from a common understanding of what we're after here. So if you were with us last weekend, Pastor Jeff began in, in Romans 13, where we talked about this idea of derived authority all authority Romans says including governments is derived from God's authority and is therefore also answerable to God's authority so this is in Romans chapter 13 verses 1 and 2 this is what Paul writes this is what Pastor Jeff explored last week he says let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established the authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And for those who do so will ju- will bring judgment on themselves. So one of the things that's interesting about that, that passage is I think it's very preachable, and, and, and we have a tendency to reference it when I have some level of agreement with whatever party or person or whatever is in power. And, and then there's a tendency to sort of react to it when the opposite is in case. But Paul, again, writes this into this uh, brutal, uh, oppressive Roman regime. He's not writing this into a, a, a kind and just system. And, it's, and so we have to kind of wrap our heads around that. And so let's keep this understanding, what, what we heard last week, in mind as we look at this very political encounter that Jesus finds himself in. And it may surprise you, but Jesus talked more about politics than sometimes we, we recognize. Or at least I, I would say it this way, he, he uses political language sometimes more than we'd like to acknowledge. In fact, when you read through the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is is launching his public ministry, when he's first beginning his his uh, to to go around Galilee, he does so by by walking around, by healing people, and 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 event, essentially proclaiming the good news that the kingdom has arrived. This is from Matthew chapter four, verse twenty three. Matthew describes it this way: It says, "Jesus went throughout Galilee." teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. What what immediately follows this in in Matthew 4 is what um, we sometimes refer to, or I sometimes refer to, as Jesus' kingdom manifesto. Jesus' kingdom manifesto. This is Matthew 5-7. through It's more commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus is is describing and teaching and inviting people into life in the kingdom. And it's entirely upside down. It's unlike anything we've ever heard where, where the blessed are called, where, where the poor in spirit are called blessed, and the and the meek and the persecuted, where where followers of this kingdom are taught to love our enemies. Right? Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and, and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right? How are we doing with that culturally? How are we doing with that in, in, in the church? This is, this is revolutionary stuff then as, as it is now. And, and not everyone was a fan of the message that Jesus was proclaiming. They envisioned this kingdom of God coming by means of battle and political savvy and, and Israel being restored as a, a nation under their own governance. But, but not by loving their enemies, so simultaneously, throughout the gospel of, of Matthew, we see Jesus proclaiming and teaching and inviting people into His kingdom, and we see people right alongside of that seeking to subvert and to discredit Jesus and His message. Which leads us to this encounter in, in Matthew chapter 22. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with there, turn there with me. Matthew chapter 22. We're going to read uh, in verse 15 and following. This is what Matthew writes. He says, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, We know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Now this is, this is just one encounter. If you read this section of Matthew, you see that there is a series of attempts to come to Jesus and to try to trip him up in his own words, to, to get him to be forced into some situation that's ultimately going to discredit him. And and as we see here, it it fails. Um, In fact, I'm curious when along the way, like the Pharisees decided to stop trying this, right? Because time after time after time, Jesus kind of turns this back on themselves. So notice how this, this conversation begins with a question. And it is a question of loyalty. This is the first thing that we see here. It is a question of loyalty. When I was uh, um, a young youth pastor, in fact, it was the summer that my oldest daughter was, we were expecting her. And right before she was scheduled to arrive, we had this mission trip to Brazil planned. So this is the summer of 2002. And it just so happened that when I was leading this team to Brazil, it was also the summer when the World Cup soccer tournament was taking place. If you know anything about Brazil, they, they have a tendency to get into this kind of thing. Um, And in 2002, the tournament was actually, the host country was South Korea. And so the games were on at about two or three in the morning and the entire nation of Brazil got up. And every North American that happened to be visiting there was asked to get up with them. And so the whole group, we all get up, we go down there where they've got TVs set up and everybody's excited and you come in. And I can tell you, they would, they would ask you the question, who are you rooting for? Who are you rooting for? And there was a right answer to that question. Like your answer, the expectation was that you were going to be pulling for Brazil. They wanted to know whose side on you are you on, and it better be our side. This is the question that's, that Jesus is facing. Whose side are you on? But they don't care his answer. Because in in their minds, either way, they feel like they've got him right where they want him. They just want him to pick a side. Let's notice a couple things here in in this exchange. First, notice their purpose. Their purpose, it says they went out and laid plans to trap him. So their, their desire is to create this logical trap that's going to force Jesus to declare his loyalty. And in doing so, whichever side that he takes, this is going to automatically discredit him with the opposing side. So they are employing the quintessential divide and conquer strategy, which is made more obvious by the second thing we notice here, which is this partnership. So there's the purpose, but what stands out is, is who is coming to Jesus. Because it says that it is the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, it's not even just the Pharisees. It says the Pharisees sent their disciples, which is interesting. Because either that this is, they've been, made these attempts enough times where they've decided, you know what, let's, let's send our disciples. We're tired of getting embarrassed. Or it's like we don't, we don't want Jesus to put, to know, see us coming. And so we're, gonna, we're going to send kind of these guys that were not fully Pharisees yet, but were in training. And they're partnering with, with the Herodians in this shared attempt. And these are two diametrically opposed groups of people. The Pharisees viewed Roman uh, occupation as, as an offense, as something to be overthrown, something that needed to end. And and so they worked and, and maneuvered to restore Israel back to their independence. The Herodians, on the other hand, said, this is our reality. So you either get on board or you're going to get run over. So as the name suggests, they aligned themselves with, with Herod and ultimately with the rule of Rome. They, they benefited from it. So you, couldn't, you could not find two groups of people farther apart on the political spectrum. But as the old saying goes... The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And they're both invested in discrediting Jesus. Which is also evidenced in in the third thing we noticed here, which is their approach. Look at verse 16 again, back in, in, in Matthew. Look at the way the disciples of the Pharisees approached Jesus. Teacher, they said, we know you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no, no attention to, to who they are. This, this introduction, this, this, it's flattery and it's insincerity and it's so thick. And it's, it's sad because they're exactly right. Everything that they notice, everything that they say about Jesus is true and the problem is, is that they fail to understand it and believe it. It's meant to disarm Jesus, not as a a, a statement or a recognition of who he is. Because if they really understood that everything they said and were saying about Jesus in that moment, if they understood it was true, if it had transformed them, then their approach to Jesus would be entirely different, but they miss it. I think it's, it's worth asking ourselves the question at times, But our own approach to Jesus. Is is Jesus something that we use to validate a perspective that we hold? Or do we come to Jesus to be transformed by it? We don't want to miss it. We don't want to miss who he is. Which then brings us to their question. Brings us to their question, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? And there it is. No matter how Jesus answers this question, in their mind, they've got him. And make no mistake about this. This is a politically loaded question. Those who lived under the Roman occupation bore a a heavy tax burden. And so this is is a hot-button issue. And this tax, this specific tax, was particularly offensive if you were Jewish. This was a per person tax that you essentially paid for the privilege of living under Roman occupation. And as the text indicates, this, is, this tax had to be paid with a Denarius. In fact, I, I brought an image of this coin. Maybe you've seen these before, but it was a, a Roman coin that bore the image of Caesar because a denarius was, it essentially belonged to Caesar. It was his silver. He had them minted, and, and so he owned them. And it stated on the coin, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So you had to pay a tax for the privilege of Roman occupation to this emperor with a coin that had his image stamped on it, declaring that he was the son of God. So you, you, you might imagine why, if you were a, a faithful Jewish man or woman, this this could rub you the wrong way. So so where does your loyalty lie, Jesus? Where's your allegiance? If Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, the crowds who have heard his message about the arrival of the kingdom of God think that he is now a fraud and just a, a puppet of Rome. If he says no the herodians immediately go and report him to roman authorities as a dissident and traitor and and rome will take care of any threat that they feel like is is after their power but jesus does neither rather jesus describes a dual citizenship he describes a dual citizenship this is the second thing that we see in this passage here i was thinking about how do, we, how do we articulate dual citizenship, this idea? And, and m- most of you that know me, have been around me, know that I'm a, a mild um, fan of Ohio State football and, and have a tendency to use them as an illustration every once in a while. And I was thinking back uh, in 2006, Ohio State was playing Notre Dame in the Fiesta Bowl. And at that time, there was a linebacker on Ohio State named A.J. Hawk, actually i have a signed football helmet in my office if you'd like to see it later it's neither here nor there um and the quarterback for notre dame was a guy by the name of brady quinn and his sister was dating or engaged to aj hawk so her fiance was on the ohio state team and her brother was on the notre dame team and this picture shows how she managed her dual citizenship right? she she kind of unique jersey created that said i am a part of i am for both of these things see when we look at at matthew 18 jesus rejects this binary alternative that is is being set up again look at his answer here he says but this is verse 18 now he says but jesus knowing their evil intent said you hypocrites Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription Caesar's, they replied. Then they said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. This should come as no surprise to us, but Jesus is brilliant the, the the way that he approaches this and handles this in in because he rejects these these false dichotomies the question is divine is designed to force jesus to to declare his allegiance but instead jesus shapes their view of of um, their relationship with the kingdom of this world in light of god's kingdom So so Jesus holds up this coin and he says, whose image is is this? Whose inscription? And of course they respond and answer Caesar's. And Jesus says, so give it to him. But, But the question that he does not ask overtly but that every Torah following Jewish man or woman would have heard in this is, is, is the follow-up question, and where has God put his image? What, what, what has God's image stamped on it? You do. I do. They did. And more than that, Caesar does. Caesar can own the coin, but who owns Caesar? Even if, if Caesar doesn't understand it or recognize it, God does. See, there is a hierarchy here, and Jesus is making it abundantly clear. You live as obedient and peaceful citizens in this kingdom, not because this kingdom is just, not, not because it's somehow earned this right, but because God is just, and because this is a reflection of a greater kingdom. Paul says it this way to to his friend Titus. This is from Titus chapter 3. At the beginning of that chapter, he says, Remind the people of God to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always gentle towards everyone so that can be simultaneously true because in psalm chapter 24 verse 1 the psalmist says it this way he says the earth is the lord's and everything in it the world and all who live in it so do you see jesus is framing their response to their interaction with their relationship and attitude towards the kingdom of the world with the knowledge and understanding that god is over all of it. And that this obedience that we offer is a reflection of who he is. There is a dual citizenship, but they are not equal. The fact that I am a citizen of God's kingdom defines my interaction with and attitude towards this kingdom. This is the reason, by the way, for centuries. When kingdoms and authorities of this world would ask Christians to violate the authority of God, to do something that was in direct opposition to God, Christians throughout, throughout history have politely refused and willingly accepted the consequences. Think back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I can't, I can't bow down and, and worship that. I can't bow down and and do something that violates my relationship with Yahweh. So we'll 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 face whatever consequences come. Uh, Matthew Scogan, who's the the president of um, Hope College, where my daughter attends up in Michigan, said said this recently. This was before the election, but. He was teaching on this passage. He said Jesus is not advocating for the for rebellion against Rome. But he is calling for the the total rebellion of your heart against anything that is not under God's authority. Let me say that again. Jesus is not advocating for rebellion against Rome, but he is calling for the total rebellion of your heart against anything that is not placed under his authority. So Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give give him this worthless piece of metal with his image printed on it. Because I own it all. Because I own you. And I own him. Because I am over all of it. Which then brings us to, to understanding our role as kingdom agents. Our role as kingdom agents. I think this is... Jesus is really driving at this here. Um, Over the last nine weeks, I I had this opportunity to join a group of people in a a study entitled Be the Bridge. It's a small group curriculum, and its focus is on racial reconciliation, but really it's it's a, and more than that, it's also just a biblical um, process of understanding reconciliation as, as a whole, and it was transformative and I am still processing so much of what I learned and the gracious people that that walked alongside of me in this and um and in that as a part of this experience and study for the very first time in my life I had the opportunity no that's not wrong I, I took I took the opportunity to read Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail um I'm embarrassed to say that that I read this as a 44 year old um for the very first time because it's it's powerful and brilliantly written. And what I did not know at the time was that King was writing this in response to a letter that he had received from eight local clergymen in Birmingham who are basically asking him to kind of quiet down, to to to, you know, stop making such a fuss, more or less. And this is this is King's reply. And there's so much in the letter that we could talk about that would be good and 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 but what struck me as I read through this letter is the manner in which King's theology defined his advocacy. That the, that the manner in which his understanding of the kingdom of God defined the way that he sought to, to promote justice and equality in this experience here. It, it, it was his role as a kingdom agent and he was seeking to live that out in fact one one of i think the most powerful parts of that letter that struck me is as he is writing his conclusion and he's writing to these eight white clergymen that that are basically reprimanding him in this movement um he at the end of this says i i I recognize you as my brothers in christ and I can't wait until I am out of this jail and we are gathered together in community and worshiping together. And his, his, the, the nature in which he understood the kingdom of God impacted every aspect of, of this letter that he wrote. So Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. So the question that we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean for us to give to God what is God? What is God's? And I think this is, this is agency. This is our role as citizens of the kingdom of God in the kingdom of this world. To represent the values and purposes of his kingdom here. This is why, by the way, no matter how adamantly you and I might disagree about a person or a policy or a political party, I cannot stop loving you. That is not an option that is available to me in God's kingdom to to sever relationship and walk away. God's kingdom doesn't leave room for that. We're called to defend the defenseless, to advocate for the victim, to seek justice where there is injustice, not because a political party or a country demands it of us, but because our God does. The Apostle Paul says it this way when he talks about this kingdom idea. He says, this is in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, We are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You're Christ's ambassadors, declaring the message of reconciliation. Now there is a lot that I can give to this kingdom. There is a lot that I can do here as a a agent of the kingdom of God within this kingdom. But there are also things that I cannot give. I cannot give my worship to this kingdom. I cannot give my heart, my allegiance to this kingdom. I cannot place my hope in this kingdom. So the question that we need to wrestle with as it relates to how we interact with this world around us as citizens in this world is where have we placed our worship, our allegiance, and our hope? Where have you placed your worship, your allegiance, and your hope? You can give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but but only give to God. God what belongs to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again that, um, that we can gather together and to look at your word. We thank you that you spoke into really important and critical things that we need to understand and to live out. And We seek to do that as your church. We seek to do that in a way that honors you and that follows you. So would you, would you guide us in that? Lord, would you, would you help us as your kingdom agents, to be able to represent and to live out the values and the priorities that you taught us when when you and and Matthew chapter 5 said, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. Would it be true here so that it can become more true out there? Would it be true in me so that my neighbors, my friends, my coworkers, everybody around me would see that I am a citizen in this world, but I am also a citizen in your kingdom. And that will define who I am and what I do. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.